Heavenly Father, as we begin this study on Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we pray that we would receive the message about the cross as wisdom, truth, and transformative power. Be present with us in our learning and our dialogue. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so welcome to the world of 1 Corinthians, um, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, likely around 53, 54 AD to the church at Corinth, which was one of the many Christian communities that Paul established. And the genre of this letter is it is a letter. It is responding to practical issues in a specific community. So unlike, for instance, his letter to the Romans, which is a big laying out of his gospel, uh, irrespective of the issues happening at the church in Rome, 1 Corinthians is more like hearing one side of a telephone conversation, right? We don't know what they're saying in Corinth, but we know what Paul is saying to them based on some very real issues he is dealing with. And I think that this is actually one of the letter's strengths because we don't have a playbook for every moral issue we are confronted with. Uh, that would be impossible. It'd be a really, really long playbook, a really long Bible. But what the Bible does give us is Paul and other apostles dealing with particular issues. And so what we can do is look at their reasoning, look at their values, and then kind of extract out how we would then approach similar issues of our day. Uh, because again, uh, the point of scripture, you know, these are not stone tablets that give us ways of modifying our behavior uh, with respect to every moral issue we'll ever face. It's more like a love letter from God to us that is meant to empower us through the Holy Spirit to do the best we can with the many ethical dilemmas we face and all the uncertainty we face. And so um, the church at Corinth had problems. If you're thinking that we're the only church with problems or the church you came from is the only church with problems or the modern day church with all of our issues is the only church with problems, you'd be wrong, right? Because the church at Corinth dealt with a lot of issues. I mean, once we get into it, to be frank, the issues they dealt with paled in comparison to the issues I deal with. I mean, if the things happening at Corinth happened at St. Michael's, uh, I'd be out of a job. I mean, you had you know people getting drunk at the Eucharist, you have the poor being discriminated against. I mean, you have all kinds of things happening in this community that are really scandalous. And the reason that's important to name is because it's very easy to have this idealistic vision of the early church. You know, people often say with nostalgia, oh, if we could just be like the early church, um, this missionary, you know, apostolic church. You know, the church would be more faithful than it was. And I'm like, have you read the New Testament? Uh, from the very beginning, the church has been plagued with all sorts of issues. And Paul is responding to those issues. And I would say that the symptoms of the primary issue is the content of the letter. So there's sexual immorality. There's getting drunk at the Eucharist. There's 
uh, quibbles over whether or not one should eat meat offered to idols. There's issues of love and authority. I mean, all these are issues that Paul deals with, uh, as are the divisions in the church. Uh, we're going to get to that in chapter one. The church is divided. But, you know, there's smoke and then there's the fire, right? You don't want to get rid of smoke. You want to get rid of the fire producing the smoke. You don't want to get rid of the symptoms. You want to address the underlying issue. Uh, and the underlying issue is that people actually don't understand the gospel. What Paul will just call the message about the cross. And we're going to get into that right from the beginning in chapter one. So I'm not going to say a whole lot about it. But notice whenever the church has divisions or issues, Paul's tactic is not to take them to a seminar on how to be a better listener. He doesn't do conflict resolution. I mean, none of that is Paul's strategy. He just points them back to the cross because Paul understands that all of these divisions and issues we deal with ultimately are symptoms of a greater problem, which is that we don't fully understand the gospel. We don't understand who God is. We don't understand what God has done to reconcile us to himself and what this says about God and says about us. We don't get it. And because we don't get it, we're divided and we fight over these various issues. And so Paul will always bring us back to the cross. The final thing I'll say that's going to be an important theme in this letter is Paul's eschatology. Eschatology pertains to the end times. And in seminary, we called this the already but not yet. You can think of two circles that overlap a little bit, but that don't fully overlap. One of those circles would be the present age. The present age is where sin, death, rebellion, pain exist, right? The present age is the kingdom of darkness. And however you understand that, but probably doesn't take much arm twisting to point you to the truth of this reality. There's war, there's disease, there's fighting, there's heartbreak, right? This is the present age. Then there is the age to come. The age to come is that place where Christ is Lord over all, where death has been defeated, where uh, love, joy, peace reign supreme, where the lion and the lamb lay down together. Uh, this is the kingdom of Christ and our God. And that's the age to come. So the question is, where do we live? Do we live in the present age or do we live in the age to come? And of course, the answer is yes. We live where those two spheres overlap. And so in the same way that there is dawn or dusk where the light and the dark commingle, it's not fully day, it's not fully night. That's kind of what time it is for Paul. Christ has already come and sent his spirit, so the age to come uh, has been inaugurated, but it's not fully here. And so the question then becomes, how do we live in the overlap of the two ages? Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel and not with eloquent wisdom so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Perfect. Thank you for that wonderful reading. And um, so as we begin, Paul um, is writing with 
Sosthenes, and we don't know a lot about Sosthenes. He does show up in Acts chapter 18, verse 17. Um, he's named as an official of the synagogue. He is beaten for confessing the name of the Lord Jesus. And I say that because this idea of calling on the name of the Lord Jesus was a really important motif in the early church. Uh, Paul says that he writes uh, to all those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, in fact, we have a feast day in the Episcopal Church called the Holy Name. It's every January 1st. We don't get to celebrate it very often because it doesn't fall on a Sunday, but every seven years and you know half the people are out of town. But this idea of the name of Jesus is so important um, that we have a feast day set aside to it. So uh, Paul and Sosthenes are together. They have a relationship with this church in Corinth. And what is fascinating is that Paul addresses these people as those who are sanctified in Christ. And the tense of this verb indicates completed action. Okay, so a sanctification has taken place. Uh, and yet there's a call to be a saint. And so already in verse two, we have some of that theology of the overlapping ages where there is a completed action, sanctification has happened, and yet there's also a call to live into that sanctification and to express it. Um, and so the metaphor I often give is, um, you know, my son Jack is 18 months old. Let's say I give him a, a pair of pants that uh, are designed for a four-year-old. Um, they're his pants, but they don't fit yet. He's going to have to grow into those clothes. And clothing is often a metaphor for the salvation we have in, in Scripture. Um, and so uh, Paul talks about how we've been clothed with Jesus Christ. So we have the clothes. The clothes don't fit. Uh, they're fully ours. They can't be taken away. But the question is, how do we grow into that gift we already have? That's a big concern of the letter because one of the things we're going to realize pretty quickly is that those who are sanctified already uh, are not living that sanctification out. And I've already hinted at that in this teaching. We already get into the divisions and quarrels that begin in verse 10. But there is a sanctification that is already given and yet a call to embody that sanctification more fully. And that's true for all of us. There is a completed action of God in your life now, a completed sanctification, a completed salvation, a completed justification. The question is, how do we come to express and to know that in ever-increasing depths? And I think the first key is gratitude. Notice in verse 4, Paul says, I give thanks for you. And again, once we get into the letter, I mean, look, the people at Corinth are struggling. There's bad behavior. There's theological misunderstanding. There's fights over issues like idol worship. There's you know, um, fighting over who has the best spiritual gifts. If all of this were happening at St. Michael's, I mean, I'm not as um, pure as Paul. It would be hard for me to thank God always for you. I might be praying for you. I might be frustrated with you, but, you know, to thank God always for you. And there's all this bad behavior, not our natural inclination, but Paul knows something about the nature of transformation, that 
whenever we live with gratitude because of the grace God has given us, that this is going to be the key to the change that we want. And of course, this is a big theme in all of Paul's letters. He says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He writes that in 1 Thessalonians. And as I like to remind people, uh, Paul does not say give thanks for all circumstances. He says give thanks in all circumstances. And so here we find uh, Paul giving thanks to God, not for the way the Corinthians are behaving, but rather because of the grace God has given them in their bad behavior. Okay, so that's a big point we need to understand. God is actually thanking God for being good, not thanking them for being good. And this theme of confidence in God's action continues in verse 8. Paul says that God will strengthen them to the end so that they may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is going to be God who strengthens us. It's going to be God who upholds us, not we who uphold ourselves. And of course, the point here is to be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This theme of the day of the Lord, it is one that is prevalent in the Old Testament, picked up in the New. And we often think about this as the second coming, but the day when those two ages don't overlap anymore, but when the kingdom of God is the end all be all, right? When heaven and earth come together, when sin and death are banished once and for all, this is the day of the Lord. And Paul's prayer is that we might be blameless on that day. And so again, we're kind of living with this funny tension because on the one hand, we are already sanctified. On the other hand, Paul is praying that God gives us strength so that we might actually become blameless. In other words, we, we can kind of, um, this is not the same word as justification, but it's the same idea. Justification, the, the idea is basically innocence, that God will declare us innocent. But unlike some Protestant reformations, you know, theologians taught, this verdict of innocence, this blameless verdict, it's not meant to just be pure fiction. You know, Luther often wrote this way. He talked about how, you know, all of our good deeds were nothing but filthy rags and how, you know, that the verdict of innocence is only going to be, you know, Christ covering us, which isn't untrue. It's just not the full truth. You know, so if I go to HEB and I pick up an avocado, but whenever I take it to the scanner, I... Uh, type in the wrong number and the label thinks it's an apple, whenever I go and scan that avocado in the self-checkout, it's going to charge me for an apple, right? It's not a real change. All I've done is change the barcode. And a lot of people speak of salvation like that, like all God's going to do is just change the barcode, even though we're the, the rotten apple or the rotten avocado that God's going to just kind of program a different number in so that whenever we come before God, will be seen as something we're not. And I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I, I, I think that what Paul is saying is that his prayer is that the Holy Spirit actually makes us blameless, that there is a transformation that takes place in our life 
so that whenever we come before God, yes, we need forgiveness. We don't come before God with our own good works, but I think his prayer is that this is not just a, a, a fiction. It's not just a, you know, God is like Mr. Magoo, can't see our sins, but that there's a real change that God works in our heart. But that's not where we are, and that's not where the Corinthians are, because in verse 10, you know, Paul basically says, okay, we got some some bad stuff going on. There's some divisions among you, and there shouldn't be divisions. And his prayer is that they be united in the same mind and the same purpose. So that's his prayer, be united in the same mind and the same purpose. And this is one of the most misunderstood verses, I think, in all of scripture, because a lot of times people like me, pastors, use this verse to push uniformity of perspective on doctrinal and social issues. We all have to vote the same way. We all have to believe the same theory of atonement. We all have to have the same understanding of scripture. But notice that is not what Paul means. Uh, for one, it wouldn't even make sense within the letter because whenever we get to Paul's dealing with meat offered to idols, you know, Paul actually has room for two different perspectives there. You know, some people are going to eat the meat. Some people aren't going to eat the meat. Not going to give you a uniform way of thinking about that, guys. That's kind of what Paul says. And so whenever Paul says, be united in the same mind, what he means is the mind of Christ. He means the mind of Christ. Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 2, uh, where he says that though in the form of God, Jesus emptied himself, took the form of a servant. So the mind we are called to have is a self-emptying servant mind that has the one purpose of working to be blameless on the day of the Lord to go back to verse eight. So whenever Paul says, be of the same mind, have the same purpose, the purpose is the sanctification and the full flowering of the church. Um, it is us growing up into the full stature of Christ. And the mind we're all called to have is any mind that promotes that. And so I, I just say that because we live in such a divided world and uh, I'm not sure there is any greater idol than uh, that, that, that many people hold in their opinions. I mean, God, we love our opinions. We love them so much and we fight over our opinions, especially our political opinions, our theological opinions. And so what I want to say is that perfectly fine to have opinions. I've got lots of opinions. In fact, it'd be really, really weird if you didn't have opinions. If you had no opinions, uh, I, I would wonder what's wrong with you. But the question is, how tightly do you hold those opinions? Because if you want to have the mind Paul talks about, you have to hold your opinions more lightly than you hold your desire for all of us to be strengthened together between now and the day of the Lord. And so in verse 11, Paul says, I know you're fighting. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people. There are quarrels among you. Uh, and I've always loved this verse because um, I don't know who Chloe was. Uh, I tend to think that she was like the head of the altar guild. You know, um, I mean, she's just the head church lady, you know, because she has people. 
you know, all, all, you know, I mean, Chloe has her people and uh, all churches today have, you know, um, leaders with their people and, and the people are talking that they're corals. And more specifically, each member of the community is identifying with a different apostle. You know, uh, I'm with Paul, right? Paul talked a lot about grace, so I'm with Paul. Uh, I'm with uh, I'm with Cephas. I'm on team Peter. You know, Peter was the rock of the church and he was Jewish. So I'm Jewish too. So Peter's my apostle. You know, people are saying things like that. And Paul's like, guys, you have missed the point entirely. I mean, you've completely missed the point. We're just workers in the same field. Like, this is not about us. It's about Christ. Don't say I belong to Paul. Don't say I belong to Cephas. We all belong to Christ. And then he turns to what he calls the message about the cross, uh, which is foolishness um, to those who don't believe. But Paul equates this with the power of God. And, um, you know, Paul later says that this is foolishness to Gentiles. Why would the cross be foolishness to Gentiles? Well, the Gentiles and the Greeks were rooted in classic Greek wisdom. You know, think of um, uh, Plotinus and Plato and Aristotle and all that wonderful wisdom tradition, the Stoic tradition, the Epicurean tradition. Uh, we know from Acts that people in Athens would just sit around debating each and every new philosophy because it was the mind that strengthened the self that made one wise. And that's not what Paul's talking about. He says, the wisdom I have to offer is that uh, we all rebelled against God, that God sent his son was nailed to a cross and invites him to join you there. He invites you to join him on that cross. And so this was just foolishness to those who don't believe. And then Paul says it's a stumbling block to the Jews. And um, why would the cross be stumbling block uh, to Jews? A lot of reasons. One would be messianic expectations, right? Jews at the time were expecting a powerful army-like political figure. That's one reason. Another reason would be the theology of Deuteronomy, which we talked about in our Jeremiah study where there were blessings and curses associated with the covenant and anyone who went to the cross was under God's curse, right? So he could not be the Messiah because this was a cursed man as we understood our scriptures in Deuteronomy. And then of course, just embarrassment, right? The cross was a symbol of shame and humiliation. Um, you know, we can imagine me kind of going to a bunch of my friends and talking about the recent death row inmate who uh, died on the electric chair or by lethal injection and saying, hey, I'm starting a new religion. Uh, this guy who died, I think he was innocent, by the way, but he was executed. Um, he's going to be the central figure. Do you want to join? Right. Who would want to join that? It would be an embarrassing movement to join. And so Paul knows that this message about the cross, that the only way this message will be believed is if God's Holy Spirit opens people's heart and allows the, allows the power of this message to transform. And that's what Paul's after. He wants this gospel to transform people, and he wants that transformation to 
work its way through the church so that people stop fighting, so they stop quarreling, so they stop uh, seeking wisdom elsewhere. And it's a, I mean, it's a tall order. I mean, if it's not true, it's nonsense. But if it is true, it is a message that relies entirely on uh, God's grace and God's work uh, within the community to believe and to orient their life around that. And then in verse 26, we get a window into the socioeconomic class of this community. We know that rich and poor coexisted in this community, but in verse 26, Paul says, uh, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose things that are not to reduce to nothing things that are. And anytime I read this, I'm often uh, reminded of Mary's words in the Magnificat, where uh, she talks about uh, how the mighty have been cast low and good news has been brought to the poor. Um, it's this reversal of fortunes where uh, those uh, with pride have been scattered in the imagination of their heart, but uh, how God has lifted up the lowly. And the invitation is then to identify with the lowly and be lifted up. That's really the problem in Corinth. No one wants to identify with the lowly Messiah who died on a cross. They want to skip that part and rush ahead to all the spiritual goodies that the Holy Spirit uh, might offer them. And so in some sense, 1 Corinthians 1 is going back to the basics. You know, Paul says, okay, you're fighting. I'm not going to address your fighting as the problem because your fighting's not the problem. Your fighting's a symptom of the problem, which is that you have forgotten about the cross. And so in studying this, I think that we're all asked to return to the cross as well and to say, where is it that we need this message to correct our tendency to divide uh, or to um, create drama that need not be created whenever we return to the gospel.